Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, also known as the Ant Hill. Today is Friday, March 23rd, 2012. That means we slipped through something I didn't say. First day of spring, guys, man. We've had the spring equinox. It is now officially spring. Spring has sprung, and that means approximately one quarter of the year is gone. What have you done with your quarter of year so far? Hopefully you've worked on individual liberty and freedom in your own life because you're either moving towards freedom or away from it. That's what we talk about here every day. Self-sufficiency and self-reliance are things that put you on the path to freedom. Dependence are things and is something that drags you toward the other end of the spectrum. And you're going one way or the other. That's it. It's either dependence on the system or self-reliance and self-sufficiency. So you take from the system what you choose to and you do the rest for yourself. It's up to you. That's what we're trying to help you do today. Given it is a Friday, today is, of course, listener call-in day. That means people in the past week or two, who have picked up the phone and mashed numbers or hit the type pad on the uh, smartphone, have uh, called in to 866-65-THINK. That's, again, 866-65-THINK. They've left a message in about two minutes or less. They've spoken clearly and loudly and gotten to the point, and they've gone through the screening process. And uh, if you do the same thing, you'll probably get through. I get about, I'd say... Close to half the calls that come in end up online. People that don't end up online don't get to the point. They ramble on and on and on and never actually ask their question. So I don't know what it is, or they never actually make their point, so I, I can't respond to it. Or they call from the back of a motorcycle or while you're operating a chainsaw or a weed eater or standing in a wind tunnel. I don't know what the hell some of you folks are doing. But if you call me and you're like, Jack, I can't really help you. I know some of you probably do it just to be funny, but I know some of you I can tell you're actually trying and I, I can't put your call on the air when it's like that so call from a good cell phone connection or a landline or a good connection on something like skype 866-65 think get to the point do it quick and uh, know what you're going to say before you call and i'll try to get you on the air don't be nervous there's no one listening to you so you should feel free to just say what you got to say get it out All right, before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day, number one, Sawtooth Tactical. Called Sawtooth Tactical because they're in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. Veteran-run, veteran-operated, and all the stuff that you need to live that tactical lifestyle. From SOE Tactical Gear to Tactical Titanium Sporks and Magpaul Magazines. Yes, I said Titanium Spork. I'm waiting for my Titanium Sporks to uh, show up here from Jeff. I bartered with him on a deal on his advertising. They're cool, folks. They're really neat. Everything you can think of for the tactical lifestyle, you'll find at Sawtooth Tactical. Again, run by a veteran, so you know it's going to be done right. Uh, and great pricing and great service. SawtoothTactical.com. Check them out. Also, I would tell you you're probably better off going to the survivalpodcast.com, clicking on their banner in the right-hand margin. That way you know you're dealing with a true Survival Podcast sponsor that is a personal endorsement by me versus a cheap imitator. Next up today, ready-made resources. Now, what more can you ask for from a company than for that company to say, our name, 
is what we do, and then they do it. That's what ReadyMade Resources does. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made, ready to go, point-click buy, great service, great uh, great shipping, and great pricing right to your front door. And I mean everything from long-term storage food to the tactical to the practical. You can find it at ReadyMade Resources. 12-volt products for your solar and wind projects, solar and wind equipment, gardening equipment, self-defense equipment, firearms, you name it. ReadyMade's got it. Check them out today, readymaderesources.com. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, last but not least, please consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And you're supporting the show at about 20 cents an episode. It's actually like 18.3 cents an episode per year at 50 bucks a year. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service. Please email me before you join Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put something like military discount or service discount in the subject line. And then just give me a couple sentences. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. And I will send you a special discount code to thank you for your service. With that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up. We're going to go ahead and take that first call. I'll let you know we will hear from one of our members of our expert panel today, Mr. Paul Wheaton, on a uh, permaculture question. Uh, and with that, uh, let's go ahead and take the first call. That won't be the first call. I just want to let you know the expert panel is rocking on. Whenever I get a question, it's going over to him. I'm hoping next week to get the page up with everybody's pictures and bios. And I'm hoping that will actually spawn some questions that are more tailored to the panel once in a while. Because I love having them on. I'd like to get about two members of the panel on each week. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take the first call into 866-65-THINK. Hey, Jack. Nick here from Southern California, where current gas prices are about 440 for a gallon of 87. Which leads to my question. Would you let rising gas prices and or the possibility of peak oil affect your next car purchase? I currently own a 17-year-old station wagon that gets about 16 in the city and 22 on the highway. I was originally considering getting a 4x4 truck with about the same gas mileage at 16 and 20. However, since gas prices have risen so fast and in such a short amount of time, I've been giving more thought to more fuel-efficient cars. My current commute is 40 miles a day, round trip. However, I do plan on cutting that down in the future. Love to hear your thoughts. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Well, in many ways, it's a personal choice, but I think it has a lot to do with the duration of your commute. And let's just use round numbers. Uh, let's say that you could push something in the neighborhood of 40 miles a gallon versus something in the neighborhood of 20 miles a gallon with a 40-mile-a-day commute. It's two gallons of gas that you're saving. And uh, if you do that, then we look at five days a week, two gallons, that's 10 gallons. At $4 a gallon, that's 40 bucks. That's $160 a month in savings. Uh, if you look at it that way, it's significant. Now, you say you're going to cut your commute down, but then there's running around and all the other stuff. It, it, it all depends on your situation in life and what you need. Um, I drive a great big giant F-350 Super Duty diesel now. Now, to be fair, that truck gets better mileage than what you have and what you're considering. It gets mid-20s, which is really good for a big truck. It does it because it's a diesel. Of course, I pay more for the diesel fuel, but why do I drive that now? Well, I drive it because I have uh, you know, two miles of rough, rocky, gravel, unpaved road every morning 
that I'm driving down before I even get to the windy, bumpy, pothole-ridden three miles of road. And then after that, then I get to a road that's actually kind of a decent road, and then a couple miles on that with some potholes and stuff like that. And it's hard on a small vehicle to take that kind of a beating day in and day out. And then the you know the whopping total of mileage I'm driving a day now is uh, about 22 miles round trip. So I've made a choice to use a big diesel truck for that trip because I believe that the vehicle will have a longer life cycle. We still have the vehicle that I had in Texas, which was a 2006 Jetta Diesel TDI, one of the most fuel-efficient vehicles, no hybrid technology, none of that crap, lots of power, lots of zip, really great top-end speed. I mean, I'll confess, I've had that car doing 100 miles an hour on the tollway in Dallas before. Uh, in fact, I had it doing a little over that one time next to a guy in a red Corvette, and he just shook his head. I mean, don't get me wrong, he could have dusted me anytime he wanted to, but he was just like, I can't believe that guy's just, you know, he was pulling ahead real slow, and I just kind of stayed with him. And that, So that's the, that's the kind of technology that is out there with higher mileage vehicle or higher um, mile-per-gallon vehicles. That vehicle gets about 44 miles to the gallon. And the only way I can kind of help you with this decision and anybody else trying to make it is to tell you why I chose that type of vehicle for what I was dealing with there. I was driving about 55 miles each way, so 110 miles a day. At the time that I bought that, my uh, the vehicle I had was a Jeep Cherokee that was getting around 16. It, over a three-year period of making that drive five days a week, the money I saved on fuel, that car bought itself in fuel savings. That car paid for itself over keeping the Cherokee, even though the Cherokee was paid off. And it's the last brand new vehicle I ever bought, and it'll probably be the last brand new vehicle I ever buy. With the amount of mileage I knew I was going to be putting on it, I wanted something that I knew would, would hang for the duration, and we got the best deal we could on the car, uh, and we still have it. And when I take long trips, it's, it's typically what I'll take because it's more efficient for those long trips. And for highway driving, it's a dream. Even though it's a smaller car, it drives like a dream. So if you're mainly going to be running around town, highways and things like that, then I would go for a better mileage vehicle because of the financial savings that it offers you. And that's true whether you're buying new or used. It doesn't matter. You still have to put gas in it. Or you still have to put diesel in if it's a diesel vehicle. So that's the decision I would personally make. Now, those type of vehicles kind of suck for a bug-out vehicle. So, you know, maybe you buy a used truck that you keep kind of, you know, you don't really drive a lot and you keep it well-maintained. You take it out maybe once a week because you don't want your vehicle sitting and never running, folks. That's the, that's the worst thing to do. To, it's worst for a vehicle to never run than for a vehicle to seldom run it. I don't just mean start it up and let it idle. I mean take it out, drive it spin the tires down the road, right, stop, start, that type of thing, and do that about once a week with it, uh, even if it's just to the store up the road a mile and two back, um, and it, it'll it'll keep the vehicle in better shape. If you're concerned about having a more rugged, bug-out style vehicle, if you're not, from what it sounds like, I would steer toward the more fuel-efficient vehicle. I would not do it because of peak oil. I think that if you're making decisions in your life right now at that level, due to the reality of peak oil, you're taking peak oil to be too imminent of a threat. The reality is we're not going to run out of gas tomorrow. We're just not. There's a ton of oil to go before we hit the, 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 the other side of that bell curve. There, there just really is. And the amount of oil that is going to be extracted from shale oil and tar sand oil in Canada boggles the mind, and it buys us time. 
Uh, our president doesn't want to do the last bit of the Keystone Pipeline because he considers that dirty oil. I'm not going to say it's not dirty oil. I'm just going to say that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And, and here's why. Canada is going to produce that oil whether we can we complete the Keystone Pipeline or not. And if they can't use the Keystone Pipeline, well, by God, they'll build their own pipeline and they'll pipe it out to the ocean. They'll put it on a boat and then they'll ship it and they'll probably ship it to refineries in Texas where it'll cost more money and we'll pay more for it and it won't develop the American jobs that could be developed by connecting the last part of the Keystone Pipeline. But peak oil, folks, it's just, it's just not the threat that some people make it out to be. It is a long-term global threat. And those that are in denial of it are in denial of reality. Every single oil field ever uh, discovered on the planet follows the same path. Production ramps up, hits a bell curve, falls off the other side. And when it falls off, it falls off rapidly. Globally, we will do the same thing. It ain't in the next five years. It just isn't. You want to lay some, lay some funds down on a bet with me on that one? Let's go. Let's go. We'll do it right now. Uh, so don't make the decision on that. Make an economic and lifestyle decision on your vehicles. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jason in Georgia. Got kind of a different question for you. I dip a lot of Copenhagen, and it's just killing me throwing all this uh, organic matter out. And uh, I was wondering, what if I took my used tobacco uh, and just dumped my whole stiff bucket pick up out into my compost bin. With that, is there anything, any chemicals in there that I don't want in my compost? Is it going to help my compost? Uh, what's the science behind that? Thanks for the podcast. Bye. Well, that's a great question because the answer to it initially was I really have no flipping idea. It seemed like a bad idea to me. It seemed like there could be some concerns So I started doing some research, and I read a bunch of people's blogs and a bunch of different opinions and a bunch of different forums, and the prevailing wisdom seems to be you can compost tobacco in typical composting fashion. So, like, when we're talking about, you know, a big, giant compost pile that's using uh, the thermal breakdown method, nitrogen and carbon combination composting, not vermicomposting, and tobacco should make up no more, depending on various opinions, between 2 and 5% of the total organic matter being composted. And if you do that, you should be fine with some primary concerns being nicotine. And then with uh, Copenhagen, if you're doing any of the stuff that's got flavorings and all, I don't know what they make that crap out of, so I would be concerned about that as well. But I would say that, I mean, if you're a heavy user, I, I don't know because I don't dip, but a can a day, so five cans a week, maybe seven cans a week. I, I don't know if that's too much or not, depending on how much other organic matter you're doing. But if you're you're doing large amounts of composting, I guess you could do it. Um, I'm going to have to annoy you and send out a public service message. It is one of the most unhealthy habits that you could possibly have to be using tobacco in that form. It, it really is. It's highly addictive. It's very difficult to quit. I've had plenty of friends that have gone through quitting, and it's very hard uh, to do. And that's that's problem in of itself. I know a person who ended up with cancer of the mouth, had part of his mouth removed. I mean, the guy is physically damaged, scarred for the rest of his life. I mean, the kind of person you look at and you think, I don't want to be accused of staring, but you stare a little bit because you just go, wow. Um, and he still dips. And the doctor told him, there's no doubt this is what caused your cancer. And he said he, he just can't quit. So I understand why people have a hard time quitting, but 
don't start. And if you are hooked on this stuff, there's, I'd rather you go get yourself a big old cigar and smoke that every night. Um, the continuous contact with the subcontinuous, subcontinuous tissue and all. I mean, I don't tell anybody how to live. And if you want to do this, you can, you know, everybody's free to do it. Just if you're a member of this audience, I give a damn about you. And, and I think that is, is one of the, uh, more dangerous things that you can do because I've seen the results of it. And, uh, if you choose to do it, you choose to do it. I'm not going to lecture you. I just feel if you're going to ask me a question and include that in it, I'm going to tell you how I feel. Uh, but tobacco in general, no more than 2 to 5% of total composting matter and keep it out of your vermicompost. Worms don't like it. It's not good for them. Uh, it's just like in many ways, it's not good for us. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jeff in New Mexico. I just got a question and a couple of comments for you. I'm doing a few large hugel culture beds, and I was wondering if you could use uh, pieces of pallets to do your hugel culture bed. Um, I kind of live in the desert, so it's kind of hard to come by wood. Um, also, uh, along those same lines, I wanted to give everybody a cheaper, easier way to do a fence. Um, you can take pallets, fill them with dirt, and then stucco the side of them, and they come out looking real nice. Also... I was wondering if uh, you knew a way that I could make my jalapenos hot. Um, I've heard a couple of different methods, but I've never really found one that really works. Um, thanks for everything, Jack. Have a good day. Now, that bugger snuck in two questions in a comment in two minutes. That means all you other folks out there can get your one question or comment in in two minutes. And because he did it, I'm going to go ahead and handle all three of them. And you're cheating and getting three for one here. But if you get it in two minutes and you're clear, I'll do it. So um, anyway, let's start out with the first thing about using pallets for hugel culture. Uh, absolutely, you can. The only concern would be, is there any kind of preservative or treatment or paint on the wood? And if there's not, then you can. My next question is, what kind of wood is it? A lot of the pallets are pine. And pine will work for hugel culture. There is no doubt about that. It will just break down much quicker. And uh, there is some resin material and stuff like that. Then most other pallets that are not pine are oak. And they take a long time to break down. So uh, they're not ideal in most instances, but they will work for you if that's the source of wood and organic matter that you have. Your comment makes me have to give you uh, kind of a caution, though. Since you live in the desert, uh, your fence idea will work really well. You fill up these pallets with, with dirt, you put stucco over top of them, and they make a great fence. And if I try it here... Uh, they will melt and rot and decay in, in probably a season or two because they just are stucco is not going to handle the massive amount of rainfall. We had like another freaking four inches of rain last night. Uh, the humidity is crazy in the summer here, so that works. You know, stucco, the whole stucco construction thing works best in uh, dry, arid environments. It's not; it can't be done. It's just not ideal in humid environments. So that makes me think about your hugel culture. And what I'm going to tell you is to get that to work for you in these desert environments, you're likely going to have to put some other thing thoughts into it. Like initially when you build it, you need to probably water the hell out of it for like, oh, I don't know, every week for the first six months to, to get the interior material uh, soaked, saturated. You kind of look at it like charging up a battery. Because you're in an environment that actually is very preservative to wood product, and you're trying to create a humid, moist condition. 
So I would think that that would be a good idea. And possibly doing things like doing swaling and culture combined so that when you do get rain, you get the maximum amount of infiltration. Uh, that will probably go a long way to help you out with that as well. Lots of organic matter and humus on top of the pile. Uh, regardless of whether you swell it or not. Lots and lots, more than we would use here. Anything that will hold moisture in, wick moisture, and tons of mulch on the surface. You've got dry, arid, windy conditions. So culture works really good, and in some ways it's a magic bullet, but it's not a magic amulet, right? It's not like it's not like the little thing with the kids get in World of Warcraft that heals everything or whatever the hell it is, right? Um It's, it's got limitations. So to make it work, those are the things I would recommend that you do. Um, the last one I'll make your jalapenos hot. It's funny because a lot of people are more worried about making them not so hot. Um, the first thing I would tell you is uh, maybe go out and find a strain of jalapenos that are already noted for their heat. So, for instance, Burpee has a strain called Biker Billy's uh, jalapenos, and they're hotter than the average jalapeno. That's just one example that I know of. Um, the other thing would be when you use your jalapenos, don't deseed them. If you leave the seeds and the white pith in them, you'll find that they're probably a hell of a lot hotter than you need them to be. And I say this because my wife is not very tolerant of heat uh, with, with spicy foods, but I'll make salsa all the time, and I'll take three or four jalapenos, I'll de-seed them, I'll dice them up raw, put them right into salsa or pico de gallo, and she'll have no problem eating it. When you do that with a jalapeno, you drop the heat way, way, way down. And even though you would take it in that, you know, like a, a jalapeno in a, a hole, like if you de-seed it and de-pith it, but don't cut it up and by itself eat it, it's still quite hot. But as soon as you dice it up and add it to anything else, it's a moderate heat, and that heat gets dissipated through the entire food. So one of the things you could do if you wanted more jalapeno heat uh, in, 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 say, some salsa or something like that, is to uh, get yourself uh, a mortar and pestle would be one thing you could do. Take two or three jalapenos uh, with seeds and like using one of the uh, one of the volcanic rock ones from like Mexico, they call them a mocajete, would be really ideal for this. Just cut up two or three jalapenos, seeds, pith, and all, and mash the crud out of them in your mocajete or uh, regular mortar and pestle till it's like a paste. Take that paste and put that into your salsa so that you have all the heat. So that would just be one example. And anytime you would want to cook with jalapenos and retain the heat better, uh, utilize uh, a similar technique. And then you could go ahead and cut up your other ones and put them straight in. But leaving the seeds and pith will go a long way toward getting more heat out of them if that's what you're looking for. The other option is just go to a hotter pepper. You know, use jalapenos for what they're, you know, I, I, it's, it's a relative thing, what's hot and what's not hot. But a serrano pepper is smaller but about twice as hot as a jalapeno. So maybe you grow some serranos and maybe you chop some serranos and if you really want heat, leave the seeds in those. They'll light your fire for you and you can just keep going from there. If you want hotter peppers, there's, there's plenty of different strains of hot peppers. The biggest thing I've heard is that jalapenos get hotter when they're under stress. What I'll tell you is they're their hottest when they're only half grown and still green. The bigger they get and the redder they get, the more mild they become, which is different. A lot of peppers, 
The more color they get, the hotter they get. Jalapenos seem to work the exact opposite. The sweet detracts from the heat, I guess, with jalapenos. And I love red jalapenos. That's one of the biggest reasons I grow them is because I can let them get to that dark, deep purple color or go all the way red. And I can't buy either one of those in the store. And I usually can't even find those at like farmers markets. But those are that, you know, that's my advice there. I, I, I would also tell you maybe you consider just growing one or two, um, habaneros. And you can take all your jalapenos and put them into something and chop up just maybe even half a habanero and drop that in there along with it, and, and you'll get that. Now, if you're looking for something like, maybe you like to do what I do, jalapeno cut in half, piece of cheese wrapped in bacon, grilled until the bacon's crisp. Awesome. And that's not hot enough for you? You know, consider leaving the, some of the seeds in pith. Uh, when I do that, for my wife, I've got to basically get them with a spoon and scrape those things bare. That's the only way she can handle them. So remember that heat is subjective, but try some biker billies uh, from Burpee. Uh, they're supposed to be about some of the hottest strain that's out there. Let's take another call. Yeah, this is Caleb from uh, California, and I recently started investing my Army disability check into one-ounce silver uh, bars. And the bars are divisible into quarter-ounce uh, quarter bars. My question for you is, should I be spending all the disability money into the bars, or should I split it up and go between pre-1965 coins and the bars as well? And uh, why should I go either way on those? Uh, any advice you can give me on that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Bye. Huh, so I'm, I'm taking it that you probably have like a partial disability uh, discharge from the military service so that you can still work. So maybe it's like a 10 or 20%, so it's not a huge payment, and that's why you've allocated this for your silver investment. As long as you have a balanced investment portfolio and this isn't your only savings, if that's what you want to do, I'm cool with that. Um, the divisible bars and divisible rounds are cool, but I don't know how practical they are. I really don't. I don't know how many people in a bar situation are going to want to be breaking a bar or breaking around in pieces and, and, and handing off those pieces. It was done in the past. There was money made in ancient Samaria, ancient Rome, uh, quite a few different places where basically money was like these coins that were like in a, almost like a wire. And you just break one off, and that, that was, you know, if you were owed five for a week's wages, they would just, you know, your, your payer, your, your employer would just break five off and hand it to you, and you'd leave it that way until you'd go. So, I mean, there is a precedent for that kind of a, a breaking thing, but I honestly feel, and even though Tea Party Silver does them, and I, and I love Mary Beth, that the modern people that are doing this are just capitalizing on something new and different and trying to create something that's different than everybody out there, which is what free markets are all about. But is it practical or is it just cool? And, and I don't know which one. But I, if you've been buying them for a while and you have some of them, I'd say you're, you're good there. Um, for me, investing is about diversity and true diversity, not financial liar diversity. Financial advisor liar diversity is we'll go get six different mutual funds in six different sectors and put all your money there. Well, now all your money's in mutual funds. All your money's in paper assets. All your money's tied to the market. All your money's tied to the dollar. There's no diversity in the way a financial liar, I mean advisor, sets you up. And I am being facetious when I say that for those that are new listeners. But with silver, I still say, well, why not diversity within the metal itself? So I have, you know, it's easier for me to tell you what I have than tell you what I think you should do. 
within my silver, I have a great variety simply because I take silver for the MSB and I take it in multiple forms. So sometimes people send me a bar, sometimes people send me a round, sometimes people send me junk silver, sometimes people send me an eagle. I've, I've received Canadian maple leaves from the audience's payment. So that creates diversity in itself. But when I look at what I've purchased, um, the foundation of my silver is made up of silver American eagles due to their tax advantages, their instant recognizability, and when you buy them in good condition, some level of possible numismatic value in the future. Uh, and they are also considered U.S. coin, right? So to me, there's multiple advantages there. The... I would say I almost have an equal amount in pre-64, you know, what they call junk silver or our recent guest, Dwayne, calls constitutional silver. There's a very low premium on buying those. You can put away a lot for a little bit of money, and they are small and divisible much more practically than something like a divisible round or a divisible bar because a quarter is a quarter. And that, that coin has an underlying value. If you have four 1964 silver quarters and a giant silver meteor hits planet Earth and silver becomes worthless because there's so much of it they build kid slides out of it, still worth a dollar. So it's both in the dollar and out of the dollar at the same time. So that's why I like that as a component. I also have some larger silver bars because in larger barter transactions, and, I'm, and I don't have 100-ounce bars. I have some 10-ounce bars and some 10-ounce rounds. Uh, they have a low premium compared to something like an American Silver Eagle, and for large barter transactions, they're more practical. They're simply more practical. And so I have that kind of diversity, and I actually think that it makes a lot of sense for people to build that type of diversity into their portfolio. I'm not all in on anything. I'm not all in on silver, and I'm not all in on one form of silver. And I also have some level of collector in me. you know. So I like some of the novelty silver rounds, and I also would say it makes sense to put copper into your uh, mix. You're going to hear a special announcement on Monday. Monday is not going to be a listener feedback show. Tuesday will be. I'm going to be out of town this week, and I'm going, my wife has been down in, in Texas all week, so I've been a bachelor for this week. Uh, don't worry, guys. I took care of myself. I, and I fed myself. I had my neighbor ask, you know, can we do anything for you? I'm like, I'm cooking shrimp and sausage gumbo, and I made lamb stew yesterday, so I'm good. Um, but uh, So I have to go down there, and uh, Monday's show's already been recorded, and you'll hear some, some reasons for uh, making copper a compelling thing. And I think that gold, I think that there should be some gold in your portfolio. And folks, if you go, I can't afford gold, you know, maybe once every other month, instead of buying two or $300 worth of silver, buy a quarter ounce of gold. I know there's a big premium there, but put away a couple ounces over three or four years and build up the tri-metal uh, concept. Because the thing about gold is, especially if the economy collapses, Enough gold to support your family for six months, you could probably hide inside a belt buckle, like a cowboy belt buckle, and there's a lot of flexibility and anonymity there. Silver is more bulky, but you know it, it has that history. But monetary history is made up of a trimetallic uh, concept. In the Civil War period, both prior and after, during shortages, people made their own copper trade tokens uh, that were taken as money. Because they were a piece of copper. Um, in, in China, in India, copper has a tremendous uh, uh, history of being a monetary unit. Uh, and that's why we did the TSP uh, survival copper coins. And those are coming back. It's part of what you're going to hear on Monday. You're going to be able to get those again. Now, I'm not saying go out and buy like 10,000 ounces of copper. I think that would just be dumb. 
you know, but having those to make change with, to use as units of exchange within the barter economy that AOC, AOCS is building. So AOCS, uh, silver and copper and gold, I think, make a component of this as well. But I don't think, you know, and, and Rob Gray, who's going to have that interview with me, would probably be like, come on, man, when I say don't put 100% into that either. You know, break things up. Numismatic value, U.S. coin, large uh, denominations, small denominations, junk silver, build up that portfolio because in any instance, now think about this. What about you're, you're in a deal with somebody during a barter situation and you go, yeah, I've got this junk silver coin here. And they go, I don't want that. Well, what do you want? I want eagles. Okay, I have those. How many houses? You know, I, I don't care. I, 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 I'll take eagles. I'll take bars. I'll take anything. But I want 999 pure bullion. I don't want that junk coin stuff. You know, you know, or I prefer junk coin. Right? You never know what you're going to end up with in, in the art of the deal, so to speak. So put diversity into it. Long answer, but it's a complicated question. I want to give you a full answer to it. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Eric in Florida. In the event that the only liquid we have is our urine, can we purify it back into drinking water by distilling, filtering, or cleaning it up with hydroponics? I know they recycle all the fluids on the International Space Station. I just wonder if it's something we can also do if we have no other option. Thank you. Well, the answer is yes with a caveat. Frankly, if you're down to a place where you have no other options for water other than recycling urine, you're screwed. Um, you, we do not have the resources of NASA, and uh, we're not going to have the resources of NASA. And frankly, NASA is not going to have the resources that NASA has if we're in that scenario. So it can be done, but it's not something to look at so much for a last-ditch effort. From a survival standpoint of a short-term survival situation, it can be used with a solar still. If you uh, if you know anything about solar stills, it's, it, it, you probably already know where I'm going with this, but uh, if you don't, a solar still is we dig a hole, we put a sheet of plastic over it, and put a rock in the center in a container uh, in the center underneath where that rock is so that all the condensation that builds up on that piece of plastic that's over top of it. Ideally, this would be clear plastic, but you could do it with uh, with black plastic as well. will condense and run down and then drip into the container. And if we're in a situation where there's not a lot of water available, we can put some green material in there is the best thing to do, like green branches and leaves and trees, because that will transpire out some of its moisture, and you can urinate on that as well. And that will recycle a lot of the water that you're using. You will never get 100% return on that. There are probably filtration systems out there that can do this, but I don't know what they are. I don't know of a filter you just basically pee in and drink what comes out the bottom. Um, there are certain health risks. Some people say it's completely safe. Those people are wrong. And I'll tell you, with, with just the straight-up drinking of urine, urine is your body using water to discharge toxins that need to get out of your body. Uh, that's why it's not pure water that comes out. So there's salts and other things that need to be eliminated. So if you were drinking urine without it being filtered or purified, even if it wouldn't directly like infect you with anything, and it, it probably wouldn't unless the person that it came from, you know, which would be yourself, I guess. This is just a gross topic, but I'm going there anyway. Um, you're still putting the toxins that your body has built up back in. So you would need to, you know, purify it in some way. But distillation would be uh, the most surefire way to do that. Boiling would not work. Boiling would concentrate the many of the toxins uh, that your body was like salts and things like that. When you boil them in water, they concentrate. So because more concentrated, so that would not work. Aquaponics. Uh, there's actually is something called, believe it or not, peaponics. 
with uh, with uh, it's, it's more of a hydroponics thing or getting uh, aquaponics system up off the ground. You know, the big thing that makes an aquaponics system work is fish poo and fish pee, and the pee more than the poo. And the pee is urea, which is pretty much what we're producing, and it's ammonia. And there's a whole nitrite, nitrate, nitrite cycle that breaks that down. And, and I guess that could be done, but it really wouldn't be so you could use the water. It would be to reuse the urine to uh, make a hydroponic system into an aquaponic system independent of fish. Uh, or to charge it up on, on the beginning. I'm not an expert in purifying urine, and I, I really don't have any intention of ever becoming one. Um, I think that the natural processes that are part of the water cycle uh, return the majority of water to the water table. And to, to be blunt, when you drink a glass of water out of your sink, you're drinking dinosaur pee. If it really bothers you that we would even have this conversation, that's the fundamental reality. Every drop of water is eventually recycled by nature. So there's a short-term survival component to this, like solar distillation. Uh, but a long-term solution, it is not. Um, these are things that, you know, they do in the space station and they still bring water up there, right? It's not like, it's not like, you know, they, they start out with nothing when they do this or they don't ever bring water with them, uh, when they, you know, it's not part of their payload or what have you. And it, it, in fact, it, it is so limiting that it is one of the primary reasons that deep space exploration is difficult to do. We can only do so much with that, to my understanding. If some of, you know, if Greg Cecil's out there, you work for NASA, dude, you know, you, you got the RV-103 blog, man. If you want to tell me I'm wrong, I'll listen to you. Uh, but uh, it's not something I would plan on for my own survival other than acute emergency short-term situations like knowing you can do solar distillation. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, Chris, and Midland, Texas again. Just wanted to let you know I was researching purchasing land up in Colorado, and speaking to one of the propane vendors, he informed me that if you have more than three 1,000-gallon propane tanks on property, they're required to notify the Department of Homeland Security about it. And though it's not illegal to have more than that amount of propane on site, I guess apparently it becomes a permitting issue and inspections, and it's just he just advised me that it was more trouble than it was worth. So, granted, that's a lot of propane to have on site, even for a, even for a prepper. But there is an upper limit, and the government does get involved at some point. Just thought I'd pass that along. Uh, again, thanks for the show. Well, it's interesting and good to know. Um, and uh, I, but I I don't know how big a deal it is. I mean, three thousand gallons of propane is a, I mean a ton of protein, propane. Literally, it's a ton and a half. I guess. Right. Uh, I don't know that that would be the case, but you, you get my joke there, maybe. Um, anyway, um, I don't know. I think that there's no way I would ever do it then. Uh, let's say there's a natural disaster and you have filled up the paperwork and gone through the trouble and headaches and you have uh, 10,000, uh, uh, you know, gallons of propane uh, and you're going to make it through forever, it seems. Well, if if you've had to get permits and all, then the local government and the federal government know that you, you have it and they might come take it away. Where if you only had 3,000 gallons or less, which is a lot and a long time of sustainability, um, then no one knows you have it and you can kind of keep it a secret. I guess if somebody really wanted to cheat the system, 
Um, you could have one company deliver a tank and hide it and another company deliver a tank and hide it and, and what have you, but you're in violation of the law knowingly at that point, and it would be really obvious that you knew you were because of how you did it, so I would advise against it, but if somebody were really getting ready for Armageddon, if things were really getting bad, that might be one way they could pull that off, and it's good to know things that, that you don't do in normal times so that you could do them in extreme times if you had to, and I, I guess that would be a good thing to know. Um, 3,000 ga uh, gallons, though, man. I think most most households that use propane from a tank tend to get by on a 500-gallon tank with, with not much problems through uh, a year's use, depending on what they use it for. And uh, a 1,000-gallon tank is about the biggest thing that I've seen anybody in a residential or even rural situation use. Um, so 3,000 gallons is probably at minimum uh, without a lot of rationing, three years of sustainability, and that's a lot. So interesting fact, I don't know how practical it was, but uh, I did want to put it on the air in case anybody has any plans of doing something for any reason uh, that would exceed that amount. You might want to scale your plans back versus uh, go on the grid, so to speak, with uh, the fact that you have that much reserve and supply. I guess another way would be to use some additional 100-gallon tanks that you can move around with a dolly uh, if you needed just a little bit more. But I, I just, again, can't see it. I, I really can't. Uh, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. It's Gordon, main man from the forum. And I just had a quick question. I just listened to the podcast uh, today with the uh, air, or I can't pronounce her name, but uh, talking about... Uh, how you shouldn't be eating vegetables that are grown <laughs> not organically. In other words, uh, I just switched to paleo, and all I can afford is, is vegetables that that aren't organic in the grocery store. I'll be starting my garden here pretty soon, but uh, till then, I wonder. I was wondering if uh, it's all right that I'm eating all this stuff and meat that isn't uh, grass-fed. So my whole paleo diet right now is basically all uh, food and, and animals that are <laughs> being fed petroleum products. Uh, just wondering if you'd give me some feedback on that. Thank you, Jack. Have a good day. I mean, this is an important call because I hope I'm not giving the wrong impression here. Organic, grass-fed, pastured poultry, pastured pork, all that stuff is a goal. It's not all or nothing. And if your choice is between eating pastas and breads and potatoes and crap like that that's unorganically grown and eating meats and veggies that are unorganically grown, I still think you're better off with a paleo lifestyle using commercial food, let's call it that. But don't think that, like, even I am 100% there. I occasionally buy beef from Kroger that's not organic. Why? Because there's no cuts of what I'm looking for in organic available, even if I could afford it. Um, I'd like to tell you that every piece of chicken that we eat is pastured poultry. I do go with organic chicken. It's not that much expensive compared to regular chicken, especially if you buy whole chickens and cut them up. Uh, organic chicken has a very low premium compared to inorganic poultry, and I still think that pastured is better. It's not treated the same way that organic poultry is as far as um, it, organic from the store is a better version of mass-produced food. Locally produced pastured poultry 
that's grain-fed to supplement its, its growth rate, because most do the rock crosses, and they need to supplement some of their feed, is to me, even if it's not quote-unquote organic, it's still better than organic from the store. So some of the things you can start to do are, look, where can I afford to eat a little bit higher quality? Um, I believe that fish from a stream or a lake is likely better for you than farm-raised tilapia. And might cost you less. I believe that game that you bring back from the field, squirrels and rabbits and deer, will be better for you than most things from the store, even the organic things. So those are some ways you can look to do it low cost. What I would tell you, though, is that occasionally I buy plain old meat, plain old pork. The thing is, it just doesn't taste as good to me anymore now that I'm eating more and more of this natural stuff. But I have fine. I'm not like some kind of mogul here or something where I can just afford anything I want. And then there's availability that's the issue. My crusade into the food industry isn't so much everybody should go and buy this stuff. It's that this stuff should become more available and therefore less expensive. The reason that these types of foods, these organically grown, naturally grown foods sell to a premium is because it's so damn hard today to do business that way because no one else does it because you're all on your own and a lot of these methods have a lot more that can be developed with them and these people have to go out and compete with this mass-produced subsidized crap. So I want to change the industry to make the stuff more available and more affordable and still let the producer make a fair profit. And uh, that's a long pathway. So in the interim, if I go to the store and I feel like we just talked about jalapenos, having some jalapenos, and I don't want to use the dehydrated or canned ones at home, I want some fresh ones, and I go and I stop at Walmart, which is not my favorite place to stop, but it's convenient, and I walk in and they've got some beautiful-looking thick-walled jalapenos instead of those crumbly, thin-walled, crappy ones they usually have, and I feel like throwing a few jalapenos on the grill tonight, I'll, I'll buy those, I'll wash them as best I can, and I'll eat them. And I know there's things in there that aren't good for me, but I try to offset that by moving some of my diet to much more pure, clean food and produce more and more for myself, shoot a squirrel out of the tree and eat him one day, that type of thing. So there's limits to what you can do, but don't let those limitations stop you from going to a, a, a diet that's based primarily on animal fats and good quality uh, fats like coconut oil. Uh, and eggs and, 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 and cream and, you know, dairy product. And I know a lot of people in the paleo are like completely off on dairy. Um, I, I do not agree. Uh, even Rob Wolf says I can't make a case against cream and butter, even though I say not to do dairy. So in his book, he says like, don't eat dairy, but I can't make a case against these two things. So that tells you there's some leeway there. But build that, you know, animal protein, animal fat diet with, with green leafy vegetables as your primary vegetable and other green and colored vegetables, moderate fruit. And if you have to do it with conventional food, I'd rather you eat that with conventional food than a typical American diet with conventional food. Now, my disclaimer, I 100% believe in this lifestyle. If you look at the pictures of me from... The last, even the last six months, and I've continued to just get healthier and stronger and, and thinner and leaner. You can see why. I just want you to understand if you don't want to try it, you, you're a vegan or you think wheat is great or whatever. I'm not putting you down when I talk about this. If that's how you want to live, go ahead. I'm just telling you this is the way that I found and it's worked so well for me. And no one's going to convince me it doesn't work until it stops working. And 
I got to tell you, and I think even on the microphone over the last six months, you've probably noticed me getting better, uh, better sounding, more energized, uh, just more full of, of life because I'm eating this way. So, main man, what I want you to do is I want you to keep doing what you're doing if it's working for you. If it's not, I want you to try to figure out where. And I want you to try to figure out how to put some healthier vegetables and meats into your diet. Find farmer's markets and things like that. Vegetables are not expensive at farmer's markets. Now, where you're at, you just don't have that option right now. It's the winter. It's cold. So maybe this summer, one of your skills to learn is canning and dehydrating and flash freezing so that you can go to these farmer's markets when things are in abundance and put some of this food away to get through these lean times and know that it's well-grown, healthy food. Uh, but you know, don't let it stop you because my belief is if you're saying that, If you were eating wheat and soy and all this other crap, you wouldn't be eating organic stuff there either, right? You'd be eating conventional stuff there. So conventional, conventional, organic, organic, same difference to me. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Brent Amer in Prince Edward Island. I have an aloe vera plant that is getting really big, and I went to the bulk barn, and I saw dried aloe vera. I was wondering if there's any other uses for aloe vera that you can think of because this thing is getting too big for the pot. Thanks. Have a good day. Bye. Well, I've never dried aloe, but if you can do it, you can do it. To me, aloe is best in its gel form. Uh, it can be used uh, on wounds and injuries and to be mixed into soaps and lotions, and it's just one of nature's absolute miracles. And you might think you have to go through some laborious process to store aloe. If you want to consume it, you can extract it and it will store for up to about a week in your refrigerator. And that's about its, its shelf life uh, from what my, my research and my understanding of where it's safe to ingest it. Um, and, and so that if you want to use it, like, and pure aloe is just disgusting, but mixed into fruit drinks and stuff like that. So if you're going to keep the plant and just kind of reduce its size, know that you could each week take a couple of leaves and squeeze it into something and put it in the refrigerator and mix it in with other foods and drinks. And it's very, very healthy for you that way. Uh, the other thing is to keep it in its gel form, it's actually really easy. As long as you're not going to be ingesting it. Uh, take as many of the, the, the leaves or stalks or whatever you want to call them as you want and just squeeze the gel out into a container that's airtight and watertight and keep it at room temperature. And it'll store almost indefinitely. And if you really want to help with the long-term storage, put it into a, uh, a dark area or put it into a brown jar. And whenever you need some for first aid use or whatever, you can just go and use it that way. So... Um, I think it's one of nature's miracles, and I would say instead of getting rid of it and doing something, let's 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 prune it down and let's take some of that gel and put it up and let's start using it. Um, if you have cracked hands or dried, like a lot of people, you get dried elbows or, or heels or whatever. It is the don't I don't even understand why people spend money on a lot of stuff uh, like moisturizers and lotions and stuff like that. You can't do better than aloe. So start using it for what it's intended for topical application or for as long as you're not storing it for too long for uh, consuming it. Extremely healthy, healthy uh, thing for your body. Very tonifying. Uh, but there's nothing to me anyway. If you have a, a, a moderate to a mild burn that's as soothing as pure aloe gel, 
it, for a sunburn, uh, if you happen to singe your hand on like a hot, you know, hot muffler pipe or something when you're working or something like that, or or burn it on a stove, uh, you know, like if you touch a, a pan you didn't mean to or something like that, and you get a, a small minor burn, they, they, you know, it's not like you're going to die or anything, but it hurts. And as soon as you put that stuff on there, man, it's just like, oh, it doesn't hurt anymore. It, it, it's amazing. So those are some ideas I have. Now, this is one that the audience might have better ideas than me. So if you have ideas for what Brent can do with this overgrown aloe plant, make sure you put them in today's comments. Again, today is show 865. Just go to the site, look up show 865, comment, and uh, tell us what you would do with an overgrown aloe plant. Let's take another call. Jack, Keith from Denver. Good job with GBTV. Uh, I just became an MSB member about a month ago. And I love what you're doing. So my question is, a lot of these people that, that want to take away our liberties and freedoms want to create a, a utopia. They want to create a society where there's no crime and, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. So my question is, what if we did something like that? You know, what if that scenario played out? What if we just, just created a parcel of land, you know, a couple thousand acres, gave them, you know, everything they need, garden, and everything was a perfect utopia for them? You know, would it stop them from doing the things that they're doing with our liberty? Uh, you know, just I guess just some food for thought, but uh, like I said, it, it's, it's a trending pattern I've noticed. The Green Party, a couple of my friends want the same thing. I guess it's a future by design thing. I, yeah, I don't know, but like I said, they want this utopia, but you know, would that be the answer? Just a massive apartment complex where they could live freely and we could live freely. Live freely. I, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but it just seems like a thought to me anyway. So talk to you soon. Bye. We already have that. We already have that. That's every socialist country out there that, that's failing is, is an example of just that, an attempt to create a utopia. Uh, listen, here's the reality. Most of the people that think this way, that are the average person, the person you're talking to that's next to you, they want to join the Green Party or whatever, to believe in this crap about, you know, everybody's, you know, deserves a job and a certain wage, no matter whether they're useless or not, and, and everything. They believe this because they've been sold the lie. The people that create the lie, though, they don't believe the lie. Socialists always promise a utopia. Read Karl Marx. That's the whole point. That's how you sell the public on following totalitarianism. It'll be great. It'll be wonderful. Everybody will have everything they need, from each according to his, his ability and to each according to his needs. It sounds so wonderful. It just doesn't work. They had one. It was called the Soviet Union. It fell apart. You know, China is moving more and more toward capitalism every day. China, in many ways, has become more of a capital, uh, capitalistic nation than the United States of America. Do you know? Do you know that the United States is now number one in something once again? We're finally number one in something once again. Yeah. Do you know what it is? Average corporate tax rate. Yep. Japan cut their corporate tax rate last week. And when you look at corporate taxes in America, and you get the federal taxes, and then you say certain states charge corporate taxes, some like Texas, there's no corporate income tax, but other states do have a corporate income tax. When you take all 50 states and you come up with the average corporate income tax rate at the state level and add it to the federal uh, tax rate, it's like 39 point something percent uh, corporate tax rate, the highest in the world. We have a higher corporate tax rate than any other country on the planet now. We're already headed toward their socialist utopia. That is the lie. And here's, let's just mechanically break it down as to why it won't work. For socialism to work, somebody has to do all the work while somebody else redistributes the wealth. 
So socialism attracts the people that are generally unproductive. So if you gave them their own little socialtopia, right? Let's say we decided, well, California is screwed anyway. And you know what? Take freaking Oregon and Washington. Those of you guys that live there don't get offended by this. And all of those that don't want to live in socialtopia, you know, move east. We'll give you, wherever a, a, a freaking social topiite leaves, we'll make their place available to you. You guys just swap. And we sent them all there. They'd literally sink into the sea because they don't do anything. They don't produce anything. They all would want to work for the government or get a handout. That's who would go there. Then they all look around at each other and go, oh, it's those jerks over there to the west of us. We need what they have. This is how socialism always works. You get a whole bunch of people that are told that they're precious little darlings and they should all have an equal share in everything. And the, the people, not all the people, but the majority, the preponderance of people attracted to that message have nothing and produce nothing, or are the leaders that are going to use them. And then you take that group of people and you say, see, those greedy people over there, they won't share. So at the point of a gun, we'll make them share with you. And then if you're a really smart leader, you, you instead of doing the pure socialism thing, you do the fascist class warfare thing that we do in this country, and then you go over and you tell the people that you're robbing to give to the non-producers, if we don't give them something, they'll go nuts and they'll come take the rest of what you have. So we have to, and it's their fault because they're useless. That's government in its modern form. And socialism doesn't work because let me tell you a fundamental fact that I put out on this show in like one of the first episodes, first six months. Sharing can only occur between equals. That is a fundamental reality. The only way you and I share is if you and I view each other as equal. We don't have to have the same stuff. We don't have to be financially equal, right? But we have to be equal as human beings if we're going to share. I can't compel you to share and then call it sharing. If I say, you're going to share, and I put a 45 to your head, and I say, if you don't share, I'm going to blow your brains out the backside of your skull, which is what socialism is. That's what socialism is. You'll share, and if you don't, men with guns will come and take you away. If it's the Soviet Union, you go to a gulag. If it's here in America, you go to prison. If it's in some other places, or even sometimes in the Soviet Union, they shoot you. But you're going to share. And if you don't want to share, we'll just take your stuff and kill you or put you away. That's not sharing. Sharing is when you and I look at each other and I say, you know what? I have a, I have a surplus of this. I see that you don't. Here, take some of mine. That's sharing. That's sharing. Doing it at the point of a gun is not sharing. That's socialism. And it amazes me that the human mind is so easily manipulated that about half the people out there think that's a good idea. It's, it's a very frightening thing to me. And the reason is that the entire class structure has been designed to put about half the people to where they are either dependent on government for a handout or dependent on government for a job. 
And it's interesting that they've divided almost perfectly in half in this country. It's, it's really interesting that that seems to have been the goal since day one. Let's get it set up so that half are dependent and half are producing so that we have a dichotomy that can't be broken and then we can get away with whatever the hell we want. No. Creating social topia as an entire region or nation or even a giant complex will not work. Because the people that go there will be the people that produce the least and expect the most. And they will eventually turn on you and say, it's your fault that they don't have their utopia. And their utopia cannot be created because you cannot create a utopia if liberty does not exist. And the only way for liberty to exist is for what you do and what you create and what you produce to be respected as yours, and that when you sell it to or share it with somebody else, you do by your own free will and choice, which is the antithesis of socialism, which is why it can't work. Now, can socialism exist in a vacuum, a microcosm? Yes. A kindergarten classroom is a socialist state. It's a little micro-socialist state, and it works very well for its purpose. Johnny and Susie are going to share the cookies because that's the way it works. You know, Susie and Debbie are going to share the toy during playtime because that's the way it works. And that works for children, and it works in that environment. And could people put together a compound on their own and have it be socialist in nature? We're all going to be communal and share. Absolutely, as long as, as long as, They do it on their own. They don't ask for me on the outside to pay for it. And people are free to come in and go, uh-uh, and leave. And it can work that way. But then it's not really socialism. Because socialism by its very nature means there's no choice. It's a socialized compound or socialized society. But it's by free choice. You, know, you can leave. And if you can't leave, which is how a nation, or it's very hard to leave a country, especially when there's no other country to go to that's not also socialist. So no, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work at all. Sorry to get on a rant, guys, but I knew as soon as I heard that one it was going to happen. So let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Mike from North Texas. I've got a permaculture question for you. I've got about three acres of land, uh, about five miles down the road, my dad's got about 45, and we've both got the same problem. They're covered up with locust trees. I've tried to do the research. I can't figure out what it is about this area that the locust trees love, but you can't kill the stupid things. They just keep coming back. Yeah, they're pretty decent wood for burning. If you can deal with the four-inch-long thorns that have thorns growing on the thorns. What is your recommendation What can we plant? What can we do to get rid of these trees, plant something to take their place? Because obviously they're getting to some kind of nutrient or something that they love. I need something that can take it up. Uh, any advice, insights you might have, I'd appreciate it very much. Thanks. When I heard that question, I decided it was time to go to the expert council. I could give you my thoughts on it, but I figured the guy that would have the no on this one 
who I remember speaking about this problem being created in Australia by Bill Mollison, who planted thornless locusts that then mutated it back into having thorns and went crazy and drove the town nuts. And I think they, he said they made Bill public enemy number one down there. He was like, they hate this bastard, right? And he had a picture of him on this PowerPoint he was doing. Uh, and I was laughing. I thought, man, I can't think of a better guy to answer this than Paul Wheaton. So, Paul, uh, would you please answer Mike's question for us? Hi, Mike. This is Paul Wheaton from permies.com. Um, <laughs> so you, you're having some trouble with locusts. Well... Um, you're not the only one. Bill Mollison is thoroughly hated for uh, some of the locusts that he's introduced in the area. As for, like, what's in the soil, it turns out that why the locusts are doing so well in your soil has more to do with what's not in your soil. Um, black locusts, well, black locusts and honey locusts are both legumes. They are nitrogen-fixing trees, so they don't need nitrogen in the soil. Uh, you know, if you want to get them to go away, one of the things to, to, to do better... Uh, plant lots of legumes, nitrogen-fixing plants, and that'll help help build your soil with something else. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I think it would be good for you to do a little bit of research into discovering what a treasure trove you might be sitting on. So uh, if you've got a whole bunch of black locust trees, have you ever considered making furniture, like outdoor furniture? Because um, anything made out of black locust wood will last longer outdoors than cedar. Um, in fact, it'll probably last five to ten times longer than cedar, and that's without any paint. So uh, fence posts is good, um, all kinds of outdoor furniture. There's probably all sorts of outdoor things you could build, sheds even, fences. Make, make, a, make a solid wood fence. Get a, get a sawmill. Um, be sure to saw it when the wood is green, because once that dries, it's like rocks. Um, the wood is not going to break down. It's, it's going to do utterly no good at all to put it inside of hugelkultur beds. Um, it's going to be a very good coppice wood. So if you go and you cut down the tree, a whole bunch of little trees will just grow right out of the stump. Um, there's, uh, it's, it's some of the very best bee fodder. So if you were to set up, if you were to start keeping bees around all, if it's around all your locust trees, that's going to make it for some of the very best honey that money can buy. Uh, you could probably sell your honey for two to three times more than other beekeepers in the area. Um, I, I guess the key is, is that you might be sitting on a big load of money if you just learned to work with the black locust instead of against it. Now, if you want to get rid of it, there are ways. Um, not, not particularly easy ways. They are very persistent and they are very durable. But the reason why they're not more common is that there, there are bugs and funguses that have come in and wiped out black locusts where they are um, where in their native areas. So I, I I wouldn't you know try and bring in anything like that. But but mostly it's going to be just cutting, 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 and more cutting. As far as firewood, um, it has like one of the highest BTUs um, per pound of wood uh, from almost any other wood. It burns crazy hot. In fact, it can burn so hot. I've heard stories of um, uh, wood stoves getting warped from from burning black locusts in them. So uh, be careful. Uh, in the meantime, you know, I, I kind of would wonder if maybe uh, some people would be willing to pay more for uh, black locusts for firewood. Not sure about that. Anyway, um, I, I think that there's a, a lot of upsides here. Um, I, I think it, uh, as you, know, you said the word permaculture at the beginning of your message. 
I think uh, the, the thing to think about is Mollison saying, you don't have a slug problem, you have a lack of ducks, uh, or you have a duck deficiency. So uh, I, think, uh, I think you've been given some lemons, and it's time for you to think about lemonade. Well, as all great advice uh, as always, great advice from Mr. Wheat and Paul. Thank you uh, for answering that question. I think you did a better job with it than I could. I'd say maybe the solution is a little bit of both, though. Just giving a few more thoughts. Why not take an area that you want to cultivate something else in, and as Paul suggested at the beginning, plant the crap out of leguminous uh, plants and nitrify the heck out of that place, so that there's enough nitrogen there for other. Uh, plants and things to compete. Plant other trees. Get the trees up to overstory. Uh, if you keep chopping down the locusts while you have fruit trees and nut trees growing, and they're able to take the nitrogen pulse that occurs off the roots. See, when you prune a tree, it will self-prune some of its own roots. It kind of has to establish equilibrium. And then that way it's not just your other nitrogen-producing uh, plants, but your nitrogen from your locusts going into the soil. And the more height and, and growth you get of other trees that shade out the locusts, the more restricted their growth will become. A basic permaculture principle is if you do not put something in a space, something else will occupy the space. So the locust tree is not just occupying the horizontal space, it's occupying the vertical space. So we need to put something in there to occupy that space. If something else occupies that space, eventually it'll crowd out the locust. And this is what would happen over time. If, if you just left it alone, but we don't have enough time to do this, right? But if you just left that space alone, eventually the locust would naturally success to another species. So maybe you can kind of speed up the succession, which is what food forestry is all about, speeding up that succession. But if you just keep cutting them down and you don't put anything else there, you bet they're going to keep growing back. So Paul's right. Firewood, awesome. Building material, awesome. So maybe you start cutting them and using them, and at the same time you try to create secession into an eventual stand of something else. And if you don't do that, they'll, they'll go away. But you probably won't live to see the day that they go away. So, And, and, and then the other side of it is, is it doesn't have to be an all-or-nothing solution. Depending on how much land you have, maybe you take the approach, I'm giving you the one, and you see kind of the, the goose that keeps laying the golden egg with another section of the land and take Paul's approach using that wood as a raw material. Um, yeah, there's thorns there, but, you know, there's ways to deal with that as well. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, we follow our There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.
children just can't pay Cause nobody up there cares They're living for 